Hey y'all, it's K-Bird Tweets, and this is Peace, Love, and Baseball. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Peace, Love, and Baseball. I'm your host, K-Bird Tweets, and this episode is coming at you on Monday, December 11th of 2023. What could there possibly be to discuss in the baseball world today? Anything happen this weekend? Uh, Yeah, I know, and don't worry, that will be our main topic of conversation today. We're going to cover the Otani signing, of course, Decision 2024, MLB's version is what I'm calling it. So we're going to talk all about that, specifically the nature of the record-breaking and unprecedented contract that he has signed. We're also going to talk about what it means for the game, which has been a big point of discussion. And, of course, the media coverage surrounding it, which was a story all on its own. We are also going to wish a very happy Hanukkah to those celebrating around the world this week, and we'll get just a little history lesson on the Jewish holiday before it's all said and done today. But first, along with this week's report, yeah, we're going to kick things off getting into what I am reading, eating, playing, obsessing over, recommending, and treating myself and all y'all to this week. We'll kind of speed through that. Uh, just, you know, fun points of conversation there. But we do have a few other orders of business to attend to before we even get to the report. So first things first, I am now a Red Sox fan. Re- I'm repping here today. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm not. Don't clip that. But I am definitely still a Tyler O'Neill fan. If you haven't heard, Tyler O'Neill, left fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals, was traded to the Boston Red Sox. There was a lot of talk. It was very public that they were looking to trade him. I don't think it was a surprise to anyone, not even Tyler, because it's just been out there for a while. But I guess the good in that is that I was able to come to terms with it. And we were all just at a place, I think, where we realized that, you know, regardless of whatever your opinion is on Tyler O'Neill, you knew that. The Cardinals, like the team wasn't going to find success with him and he wasn't going to find success with the team. It just was not meshing, not a fit for the Cardinals puzzle in 2024 and beyond. So got that transaction done and out of the way. And the good news is that my sweatshirt is still red for the Red Sox. Don't really care what number he's going to be wearing with them because that's not what people are looking at. So I love you, bro. I'm wishing you all the best. Maybe someday I'll get like deeper into my, I don't want to call them conspiracy theories because I think they're very realistic theories about the kind of culture, maybe some of the um, tension among Tyler O'Neill and the Cardinals organization, but just hoping for him that he is healthy this year. I do also speculate from what has been out there about him the last couple of years as he's worked through a lot of different injuries that, you know, based on his body type and how that plays into baseball activities, I think it's some specific things to work through to try to change up 
to really maximize his game and his potential going into his free agency year, which will be the 2025 season. So that is not something that happens quickly. And I think maybe a a lot of times it comes with injuries and challenges and setbacks before you kind of push through to hopefully get to a place where he's better than ever before. So wishing you all the best, bro. I will totally be checking in and following on your career following in following your career, regardless of where you play. You might also notice second order of business here that I've added an ornament to my tree. I, I really wanted to add a Shohei Otani's face at the top as my star. Maybe I'll get on that. Ran out of time. Forgot about it, honestly, but I have added my peace ornament. My husband got me this cute little peace ornament. So now I've got peace and baseball. So I need a heart. I guess I need a love that'll be next week. Maybe if anyone has a cute heart ornament, you want to send to me, hit me up. Let me know. We'll add it to the tree, but thank you, Daniel, for my peace ornaments, making us even more festive here in the peace, love and baseball studios. And okay. Last order of business before we really get into it here next week, we are going to do kind of a pre new year's like resolution episode with one of my best friends. Her name is Megan. I lived with her for years in New York City. She has uh, my cat's brother. We adopted our our cats together. And anyway, you'll learn lots more about her next week. She currently lives in the Orlando area now and has for the last couple of years. But we are going to do an episode that honestly, we have been talking about doing for probably 10 years since before I think either of us even really knew what podcasting was. But I think this initially was an idea for a book of where, especially when we moved to New York City together, there was like all of these things that people did all the time that we would come home and just like share war stories of, you know, being on the streets in in New York City, (laughs) like working day to day, you know, there's just, it's just hard out there to like do anything. And especially when you're in your early 20s living on your own for the first time. So we would end the day, you know, sitting on our couch being like, and then this person did this. And like, what the hell were they thinking? And ultimately, we came up with this idea that we should write a book called You're Stupid, We're Better, which I I know sounds a little offensive, but it's not... It's not anything like you can have your own opinion. Like it's not, it's not a diss on like anything that you think over what we think. It's just like resolutions for the general public is kind of the angle that we're taking for it. So like, you know, drive, we've gotten a lot of submissions for like driving things that, that people do that they just need to stop doing or you know, maybe it's something that someone does that you live with that just like annoys you. Like they constantly put empty containers back in the fridge, things like that, where we're like, maybe as a, as a society, as a general public, we could stop doing these things and we would all be better for it. So we've gotten a lot, like I mentioned for driving, we've gotten submissions for uh, like traveling behaviors, um, public events, like things people generally do that are annoying at public events. I don't want to get you into detail with it because obviously that's what next week's episode is for. And if you have any specific instances, like even specific stories or just specific things that you're like, why do people do this? Even if you think it's not super common, like throw it out because we're here to dissect it and break it all down with you. 
So you can hit up the Google form in the show notes, or if you are watching on YouTube, it won't let me link it in the show notes. So you can find my link tree on Twitter or Instagram, or you can simply shoot me an email at kbirdtweets at gmail.com. My little, I'm going to do this right, name right here in the corner, <laughs> kbirdtweets at gmail.com if that is easier for you. So get your submissions in and Megan and I look forward to breaking down all of the good resolutions for the general public that we will talk about for 2024 next week. Let's get into this week's report. Going to be a little bit quicker of a one this week because we have lots to cover with Shohei Otani. But what I am reading this week is a book called Five Years From Now. It is by Paige Toon. And I want to give a big shout out to Sarah Ann, who is one of the co-hosts of There Is Crying in Baseball, which is a Cardinals baseball podcast. Uh, you should check them out if you have not already. But I just wanted to give a shout out to her because when I first started doing the report and committed to, you know, telling y'all what I'm reading, like almost every week, I had to kind of get back into reading and recommit to it. And one of the easiest ways to do that and to spend your time and energy doing something that is a lot more just like creatively lucrative and healthy for your brain and your imagination, like reading as opposed to, you know, doom scrolling and all that good stuff that we might be doing otherwise. A big part of what helps me with that is having recommendations from people that you know, I get excited about reading. So if I have something to read next, there's not like this giant gap of time between what I last read and what I'm reading now. So Sarah, I'm not that far into it yet. I guess I'm about halfway through really enjoying it so far. And when I told Sarah I was going to read it, she said something along the lines of like, you'll have to let me know if you like it or if I'm just like a big sappy loser. I told her chances are I am also a big sappy loser, but I will let you know once I have finished it. So far, so good. And I would also recommend it for anybody who's looking for their next book to read. Okay, eating and playing on the report are the next two, and they kind of go together. So, so I'm going to kind of talk about them together, okay? So this week, I am eating more veggies, more veggies, trying to think about that a little bit more specifically trying to eat more sweet potatoes and kind of like incorporate overall more of a Mediterranean diet, which is very attractive and delicious to me. Sounds great. But sometimes it can be hard to do, especially because like you have to go to the store more often sometimes to make sure that you have fresh vegetables. It takes longer to prepare them than, you know, things like rice or noodles sometimes. And you kind of have to do a little bit more to them to make it interesting, I guess, sometimes. But the thing that sparked this was what I am playing this week. And that is that my husband and I watched the Blue Zones documentary on Netflix. If you haven't watched it yet, that's what I'm going to tell you to play on your Netflix this week. I think it's like four or five episodes, maybe five. But we watched the whole thing in one night, I think. Or maybe we broke it up between two nights. I can't remember, but we were just so fascinated with it. And a lot of what we loved about it was it kind of takes you back to a simpler time. And if, you, if you're if you not familiar with the Blue Zones, they are specific areas in our world where there are people who are living longer. And, and generally, the populations are older and finding more just success and health in old age than other parts of the world. So it's interesting to go and see like, what are they doing that is putting them in that 
position? And and can we change areas of our world and change our behaviors to, you know, ideally live longer and enjoy life longer is a really huge part of it. So it takes you back to a simpler time. It reminds you to focus on the things that make us human and like why we are here and that we need each other and the way that things used to be before all of these crazy conveniences that we have. And a lot of those things are, you know, as much as they're giving to us, they are taking away a lot of things from us as well. And a lot of things that ultimately lead to happiness and longevity and happiness in that longevity. So one of the things that they talk about is the diet. And obviously they eat a lot less processed foods and one of the more interesting parts and reasons that I think people should watch it and will be surprised by is a lot of them eat higher carb diets. And I don't know if you've listened to anything that I've talked nutritionally about before. I'm like, I just think the, the keto conversation and all of that is kind of taken to an extreme and is a little overboard. And there's a lot of people who think like carbs are the devil and they're just not. And you actually need them for a lot of different reasons. And I'm, I'm mentioning sweet potatoes specifically this week because I have heard them in like, I listen to a lot of, I consume a lot of like wellness content other than just the Blue Zones documentary. And I swear, everything I've listened to, whether you want a healthier gut or you want better hair, skin, and nails, or you want to live longer, sweet potatoes is the answer. And also sweet potatoes are like so good. They're super nutritionally dense. There's lots of fun ways to eat them. So if nothing else, you know, if you can't incorporate a lot of other veggies, if you just need to take it one step at a time, let's eat some sweet potatoes this week and this holiday season and watch that Blue Zones documentary. Okay. My obsession is kind of an obsession that I had before. And that is, uh, we're ba I'm back. I'm stuck on Shohei Otani's dog because there were all these reports that came out that we didn't know what Shohei Otani's dog's name was, not because he's just like a private person and I don't know, no one's asked him and he hasn't mentioned it to anyone, but because it had something to do with the name of the team he was going to choose, which, you know, I guess you can make your own assumption with that, but uh, I do think the Artful Dodger would be a really freaking cute name for that dog. So I decided that if the dog's name isn't the Artful Dodger, this is just really all a huge letdown. Everything is a scam. I hope his name is the Artful Dodger. This week I am recommending, okay, it's not a thing. It's not like a physical thing. I'm not going to tell you to go out and buy a certain type of tea or do some yoga or whatever. This week I want to talk just a little bit about vulnerability and the human, the shared human experience. Because I had, I don't want to say a rare thing happen, but I, I just, a moment that I could really appreciate that doesn't happen every day. Uh, yesterday when I did something that I felt really stupid and silly about and I shared it with someone who would know exactly what I was talking about, but was not necessarily a, like a super close friend or family member of mine. So I was kind of putting myself out there, but I just felt the need to like share this experience and put it out there with someone who would understand exactly what I was talking about. And it was awesome because it was received with empathy 
and a, a shared experience. How great does it feel when you're feeling really silly or stupid about something and you share it with someone really self-conscious about something you share it with someone. And the first thing they say is, Oh my gosh, I totally understand me too. <laughs> like I have been there and sometimes they'll even share with you. Like you'll never believe what I did. And that's exactly what happened in this instance when I was just like, I need to let this go. And the only way I'm going to let it go is if I can share it and kind of talk it out with someone. And I very fortunately was met with that kind of compassion and empathy and a shared human experience. And it just made me reflect on how special and necessary that is. And how I think a lot of times we can kind of keep those things inside of us and then they just eat us alive and you go to bed thinking about it. And it's like, this is so the real stupid thing that you did was not being able to let this go. But it is so much easier to process when we can process it with each other because we need human connection. We are wired for human connection. Here I am on my Brene Brown soapbox, but it's just true. And I think sometimes it gets harder and harder to do in today's world, but sharing our failures, picking each other up. And then, like I said, she, this person that I shared it with, she shared an experience right back with me that she had been really self-conscious about all day and felt like, because I shared that with her, she could share hers with me. And then we both just felt so much better. I hope. I know I did. And if my friend is listening, I, I know she knows who I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, it just reminded me that like we're not always going to be met with that. But if you have those people in your life that you know you feel like you can trust and be vulnerable with, it never hurts to share with them. And a lot of times it can be really helpful in processing emotions just in the moment and being able to move on from it and and not having to make it a big thing. Like I, I literally just felt so much lighter like 10 minutes later. So thank you for that, friend. And I encourage you all to do the same, whether you have something just on your mind or when you are met with someone who comes to you and says, oh my gosh, I'm feeling like so silly about this, so bad about this, empathize with them because we all have those feelings of like shame and regret and anxiety over something. We all do. And, and that's the thing that we all can take solace in is that we all mess up sometimes and none of us are perfect. And that's what makes us human. And sharing that with each other is a huge part of the human experience. Okay. Last but not least, a treat. If you follow me on Twitter, you saw that I made a bunt cake uh, for the first time this weekend. And, you know, I don't really know what inspired me to do it other than I, I, I think on Twitter, I actually saw like a recipe and it was a recipe that was in the Times, in the New York Times. And because I don't pay for the New York Times, I couldn't see the recipe. Like I couldn't, I couldn't get it because I'm not subscribed. So I Googled it and I don't know if I found the exact same recipe, but I think I did for free. So I, I don't know. It just sounded really good to me and I've never made a bunt cake. So I went out and I got my little bunt cake pan 
And it was, it's so good, you guys. It's so good. Like the texture of it is incredible. It has Greek yogurt in it. I feel like that's part of why like the texture is very moist and delicious, but it has cranberries in it. I put, it called for almonds. I put almonds and pistachios in it because you know, I wanted it to be like red and green and festive. Um, it has an orange glaze that goes on top of it. I'm still perfecting the presentation on that. I'm going to make it again for Christmas Eve because it turned out so well. So maybe by Christmas Eve, I'll have a really pretty picture of it for you too. But hey, I'm going to link that recipe in the show notes because it's different. It's unique. And if you like to bake and make desserts, I'm not going to say it was like super easy. Uh, it, it took a little bit of time, but I am not a, a great cook by any means or a great baker, but I'm really good at following directions. So these directions were good. If you follow them, I would assume your your spice cranberry bundt cake would turn out just as well as mine did. And it was real, real good. Okay. So good luck with that. If you try it, let me know what you think of it. Now is the time, folks. We are going to pivot straight into the baseball world and all the baseball world is a buzz with none other than Shohei Otani, the star on top of our tree. So it came out, if, if you haven't heard, if you've been living under a rock, if you are not a baseball fan and you are listening, God bless you. Thank you for being here. <laughs> not a baseball fan yet, but you will be. Maybe not from this conversation, but it, bear with me. Okay. So Shohei Otani, he chose his team. He is the, I mean, the biggest, most anticipated free agent in the game because he is a true two-way player, the likes of which we have never seen before. He has been playing for a team, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, that are never serious playoff contenders. He has never played in the postseason in his six years in Major League Baseball all whilst winning the MVP twice and being, you know, the most phenomenal player in the game, the likes of which we have never seen before. So it's hugely anticipated. Like, who is he going to sign with? Is he going to pick a team that he can win with? Because, you know, we've heard that that's important to him. I, I would think, I mean, if you can pick any team you want to play with, why not play on a winner? I of course did an episode a couple of weeks ago saying that I thought he was going to stay with his team, the angels. But a lot of that was because he had a second, I guess what we are not calling Tommy John surgery, but I think very much was Tommy John surgery. I say, I think I'm, I'm not a doctor. He had his UCL repaired for the second time surgically. And there is, you know, a certain amount of risk and the rate of success of him returning as a successful pitcher is not like super great or super promising. So I think a lot of us were anticipating that heavily affecting his market value, at least at, a, at an initial signing here, and that maybe he would sign a shorter term deal or, you know, a long term deal with some opt outs. And, and none of that, none of that happens. And now in retrospect, I'm like, of course, none of that happens because he is worth so much money off the field as well. And so much of what we're going to talk about today just shows how much he is worth off the field and how that gives both him and the team that he's playing for a lot of options that you just simply wouldn't have with another player. So Otani signs with the Los Angeles Dodgers. They are his pick. And at first I was like, 
Oh my God. I am just, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to do this episode because I am so freaking bored because of course Shohei Otani signed with the Dodgers. Like half the reason I wanted to believe my uh, angels theory was because I just didn't want him to sign with the Dodgers. Okay. It's boring to me as a Cardinals fan. The Dodgers are one of my least favorite teams. I'm just not that into it, but okay. Now that I got that out of the way, let's talk about it. He signed with the Dodgers for a 10 year, $700 million contract. Now that is about $200 million more than I think most people were anticipating the the guesses that we had heard thrown out there even before he was injured. So it was, it was a shock to the system for sure. He is the first player in baseball to get paid uh, over half, half a billion dollars. The next largest contract in baseball was his former teammate, Mike Trout, who I think was at 425. And this is obviously uh, not even close to, to 425. So $700 Per Ken Rosenthal, the Otani deal with the Dodgers, per source, includes unprecedented deferrals, the majority of his salary. So this is the news that came out when it broke, like he's going to sign with the Dodgers. The deferrals were Otani's idea to ease the Dodgers' luxury tax and cash flow burdens to give the team the flexibility needed to be as competitive as possible, the source said. So when I was writing this out and working on this episode earlier today, this is what I wrote. It is anticipated as the details come out here that the first few years of the contract will be on the lower end, heavily backloaded, and that's another important point to recognize. The value of his contract over a 10-year period is different than it would be if he was actually making all of that money up front over 10 years. But it is going to be spread out over many more years from what is being reported. And indeed it is, because since then, it has been reported per Jeff Passan of ESPN just in the last few hours that Otani's deal called for him to be paid only $2 million a year for the next 10 seasons. Of $700 million, he is only going to be paid $20 million in the time that he is actually playing baseball on the field. The rest, $680 million, is deferred. So he will be paid $68 million a year from 2034 to 2044. And according to my friend and resource, Kelly Franco, this will be paid out without interest from 2034 to 2044. So that's also where it gets like a little murky and interesting, right? Because that amount of money 10 years from now is not the same, but without interest. Another interesting thing for us to learn about together here is the CBT hit on the contract is going to be around 46 million, which is a huge discount for the Dodgers. And what is the CBT? Well, I'm glad you asked because I needed to find out a little bit more about it myself. CBT is competitive balance tax. According to MLB.com, each year clubs that exceed a predetermined payroll threshold are subject to a competitive balance tax, which is commonly referred to as the luxury tax. Okay, so it's the luxury tax. We've heard that talked about once I realized it's the same thing. I was like, okay, but here's how it works. So those who carry payrolls above that threshold are taxed on each dollar above 
the threshold, with the tax rate increasing based on the number of consecutive years a club has exceeded the threshold. So imagine if they had done it for all 10 years of Otani's contract, more added to it. Yeah, that's going to add up really quickly. A team's competitive balance tax figure is determined using the average annual value value of each player's contract on the 40-man roster, plus any additional player benefits. Every team's final CBT figure is calculated at the end of the season. So if a player signs a contract extension that doesn't kick in until a later season, sometimes that happens, right? They will sign an extension that has them getting paid a lot more in the future, then his AAV for the purpose of the CBT doesn't change until the new deal begins. So yeah, by him deferring that money, now it's it's going to kick in in 2034, but what does Shohei care? Because he's not going to be playing and the Dodgers have to deal with that then. And also, I mean, just generally in business as a whole, like money today is so much more valuable than money tomorrow. So Teams love it, even if we're looking ahead and being like, I mean, (laughs) I tweeted out and I am half being very, very silly that, um, you know, who cares about the next 10 years? Like, I'm going to tell my kids that the 2034 Dodgers always sucked this much (laughs) because it's just going to be a storyline that we're going to be following. I mean, for the rest of uh, some of our lives, really. Now, it should also be noted that there are actually specifications in the current CBA, the collective bargaining agreement between Major League Baseball and the Players Union, that specifically state that there are no limitations on deferred compensation. So, yeah, if you're like, is this legal? It's legal, y'all. And this has always been the name of the game, okay? This happens all the time where these crazy deals and facts and figures come out and we're like, can they even do that? they can. And that's, that's how wealthy people operate. This is like top tier business. And a lot of people really admire it. And I think at at times it is to be admired and at times, you know, think of it what you will, but they're always looking for a new loophole, a new way around things. And that's why the major league baseball and the players union have to exist to keep these things in check because things happen And then they, you know, pass different laws or regulations and stuff to to help manage it, especially, you know, depending on how it plays out for the game. Like we were even thinking last year when they were signing all these long-term deals like Trey Turner and even Carlos Correa, even though his super long-term one did not go through. These 10-year deals, 12-year deals for some of these guys who you're like, they're not going to play that long. But obviously, they're doing exactly what Shohei Otani is doing just at a lesser (laughs) extent to help the team's competitive luxury tax. And, And so we were talking about this last season, like are they going to put more regulations around deferred compensation? They have yet to do so. We'll see if it is a point of contention at the next uh, CBA. But so far, so good for the Dodgers. And also, also, this is obviously a great benefit to the Dodgers. But it was reported that Otani offered this sort of deal to all the teams that he was negotiating with. Because if you're going to get paid this kind of money the last thing that you want to be hearing or thinking about is, well, we can't spend money on other players because of what we're spending to you. So he's like, let's just take that off the table. 
I make so much money in deals off <laughs> of the field. He made $40 million last season off the field. So yeah, no, he's not worried. And that's when he was with the angels. He is now worried about making money year over year for the next 10 years at all. And, and good for him, but he just, he wants to be on a team that's going to win. And, and that's the last thing that you want to be hearing or being concerned about is like, well, because you're parent paying me, you can't afford to surround me with the right people. So he cares about the team being competitive while he's there, but it could also be a stroke of genius per Bob Nightingale for tax repercussions. Listen to this. If Otani is not living in California, once his deferred payments start, he's not subjected to the heavy California state tax. He can go live in one of those tax-free states. Wowee. What a guy. So the $700 million amount for the deal was surprising. As I kind of already mentioned, we heard the reports of $500 million, which would have easily made him the highest paid player in Major League Baseball and the largest contract in Major League Baseball. But it does make a bit more sense when you think about how the value differs when it's spread out and deferred. So that's something that I'm sure people who are much better at math will talk all about, and you will be able to find a lot of content. And if you're interested in and taking a deep dive there, but as we already mentioned, that interest will, it is not going to be paid out with any kind of interest over 2034 to 2044. Here's the other thing I want to talk about. It is important to realize that there are only a handful of teams in Major League Baseball that are in any kind of position to offer this kind of deal, regardless of what kind of money is being deferred from their financial status to the state of their farm system and beyond. And it's not something where you're like, okay, we got 10 years to kind of get ourselves in a position to be better off to pay him out heavily. Like, no. You already had to be ready for it. And you know the Dodgers were freaking ready for it. So even with deferrals, like I said, it could be it could put many teams in a position to like really destroy their franchise from the inside out. And likely not a contract that MLB, I would assume, would even be able to approve for a certain number of teams. Now, all the teams that we heard that were really in the conversation for Otani are the teams that that we're going to be able to withstand this kind of an offer and not just crumble to the ground. So, so don't worry. I do believe the Dodgers will be just fine. And, but this is where the conversation of like how maybe this is not great for the game comes into play because obviously it creates a whole nother level of payroll disparity, which is already a big topic of conversation. And it is, that is because it is quite the challenge for some smaller market teams. So how is Shohei Otani signing the largest contract in the history of professional sports? By the way, this is not just the largest contract in the history of major league baseball. It is the largest contract in the history of professional sports. How is it good for the game of baseball? Because Ken Rosenthal put out a great article about why it's good for the game and of course, he got a lot of initial pushback. I know there's so many people out there being like, are you kidding me? There is no way that this is good for the game. And I, I hear you. I see you to an extent. I am with you. But here are 
the reasons why maybe, maybe it's kind of good for the game. Okay. Just hear me out. I'm not going to lie. I told you I was less than thrilled that Shohei signed with the Dodgers because they are one of my least favorite teams. It is so predictable and it's, it's just not super exciting the way that it would have seemed for a team like the Blue Jays or even the Giants who are just not as notorious for signing these superstars. But here's what I do love about it. I absolutely love that he broke his own news. That That is a true icon right there. Icon. High five. I also want to mention that I'm already very sick of all of this. Will the Dodgers win the World Series in 2024? <sighs> Did you forget, like, he's not going to pitch in 2024. And while obviously he's a huge threat as a hitter, especially in that lineup, they have a lot more work to do with their starting rotation and the bottom half of their order even to be a team that cruises in the playoffs. They can get in the playoffs. We know the Dodgers can do that. That's not their issue. (laughs) But, like, even the way that I would consider the Braves and the Phillies to be built right now, Adding Otani as a hitter to the 2024 Dodgers lineup does not immediately make them better than those teams. Not at all. So one, the Dodgers are absolutely taking a chance on Otani returning to full form as a top of the rotation starting pitcher in 2025 and beyond. But two, even if he doesn't, and there is a good chance he doesn't, remember, the return to form after a second Tommy John is few and far between. He is still worth every damn penny in marketing deals, exposure, TV revenue, all that merch, baby. People are waiting for it. All of that alone. Not to mention he could potentially be an outfielder in the future. I mean, with his athleticism and skill set. So it'll be exciting to see how all of that ultimately plays out on the field for Shohei as well. And that is the first reason why I, why I will say that this isn't bad at all from a player's perspective, particularly. We are all, I think as fans, we're generally pro-player, uh, though I certainly find the business side interesting and you know see both sides. Because the man is going to get paid according to the value that he brings to the team and value is a lot more than on-the-field play and results when it comes to a player like Shohei Otani. So Otani and his agents are well aware of that. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a guy who is actually, I would rather have the guy who is actually making the money for the team or like any company be the one who sees as much of the profit as he can possibly negotiate from all of that revenue. So while it's hard to see such an insane amount of money thrown around to any one person in this capacity, that it seems kind of disgusting, right? When there's the kind of poverty issues that we still very much face just in this country, let alone in the world. But I would rather see Shohei Otani pocket as much of that revenue as possible because he's earning it. This is why the players union is so important. And this is a win for them as well. Most companies operate, think about it. Most companies operate where the people at the top are often doing very little other than being in a position of privilege to begin with. And they are the ones pocketing all of this insane money. Now I'm not saying that the people at the top of the Dodgers are not going to pocket an insane amount of money off of Otani because you know, they will make damn sure of that. But that's exactly why you want to see it negotiated for Otani to take home as much of that 
as possible. You don't see this kind of contract, particularly with the amount of risk involved in his future play and performance, at least on one side of the ball, if there were not other guaranteed ways that the organization knows that they are going to profit off of him either way. So good for Otani and for his agents for projecting that and standing their ground to get the money on the ground level, which in this case is in the pocket of Shohei Otani, the guy out there doing the work, getting paid. And if it was exclusively about getting the most insane amount of money, like, you know, Uncle Steve, Steve Cohen, he would have topped it. He would have been like, what's 800 million? I'm Steve Cohen. But Otani, he didn't want to play for the Mets. Because, and I think uh, there's probably a number of reasons for that, but the Mets are even more like, they are easily more than one player away from being serious contenders in the next season or two, I would say. Like, there would be a lot more pressure for Otani to be the difference maker on the Mets roster than it is with a team like the Dodgers. They just don't have the track record of winning, which is clearly also very important to Shohei Otani at this point, the way that the Dodgers do. So it's obviously good for the game to have the game's biggest star playing in the postseason. I think we can all agree on that. But I am also very much on board with the frustration and, like I mentioned, just the boredom of seeing all of the biggest stars play for the large market teams. There is no salary cap in baseball like there is in other major sports leagues. So obviously the small market frustration is warranted and understandable, but it is the players union as much as it is MLB that ultimately will just never be on board with the salary cap for the reasons that we just talked about. Give the players the money. They're earning it. Get paid accordingly for what the team is making off of you. That's what it comes down to for me of why I would not support a salary cap. It is insane that Shohei Otani's contract, let's just say, let's just say for the sake of this comparison, he is making 70 million a year. And that is more than or comparable to the total payroll for teams like the Pirates, the Rays, uh, the Orioles, the A's. But here's where it is important to point out that having the highest payroll and spending a certain amount of money does not guarantee you a spot in the playoffs, which is not always the case in other sports and why a salary cap is perhaps more necessary. See the 2023 Padres, Mets, and Yankees, who spent an outrageous amount of money to not even make it to the playoffs, which are expanded now. So even in the expanded playoffs era, teams like the Padres, the Mets, the Yankees in 2023, they they were not even in the playoffs. Did you forget? They were not even there. Not even for a wild card game. They were not there. <laughs> Let alone did they have any kind of deep October run. You had the Orioles with the second to lowest overall payroll in baseball last season who won the AL East which is arguably the most competitive division in all of baseball. The Diamondbacks, who had the 10th lowest payroll in all of baseball, were in the World Series. So comparing it to other sports, I thought this was interesting. If you compare it to other sports that have a salary cap over the past couple of decades, we see that the number of different teams 
that have been champions in these sports since 2000, that Major League Baseball has actually had the most different teams of the major sports to win championships. There have been 16 different teams over the past 23 years that have won the World Series, where in the NFL and the NHL, who cares about hockey anyway, the NFL and the NHL, they have each had only 13 different teams win the title over the past 23 years. And the NBA has had only 11 different teams win championship titles in the same span of time. So I do like the idea that this only helps to prove that money is not the only thing that matters and you cannot really buy a championship in Major League Baseball. And what you certainly can't buy is consistent greatness and true longevity, that like dynasty, right, that we always hear talked about. That does not exist through purchase alone in this league. So over the course of 162, it's just not possible to win out exclusively through spending. If anything, it's even more exciting when teams like the Diamondbacks and the Orioles outplay teams like the Dodgers and the Mets. I certainly had a lot of fun seeing that play out the way that it did this past season. There is always as much of a chance that that is going to happen in this game. And there are a lot of different ways to build a contending team. So I'll be it more challenging for those that do not have the same spending flexibility. I'm not arguing with that. It is more challenging. It is more chess than checkers, but there is still a lot more to it than just shelling out the monster deals. So I don't hate that that is highlighted by the absence of a salary cap in baseball. Ken Rosenthal also points out in his article, which I will link in the show notes. If you're an athletic subscriber, check it out. He says that Otani, who will play in the nation's second largest media market, only enhances his stature and that of his sport. He now owns the richest deal in sports, even if the massive deferrals reduce the present day value of his contract. He will be playing for the game's most successful regular season franchise over the past decade, but one that has not won a World Series in a full season since 1988. Yeah, because, you know, like they won in 2020, but it was like a 60 game season or something like. I don't know. I mean, they still have a World Series ring, but did it really count? I like to think the Dodgers have not won a World Series in my lifetime, so. All eyes are going to be on Shohei Otani, even those of casual fans, is what Rosenthal says. And it's true. It's true. Okay, Dodgers. At the end of the day, Otani almost doubled Aaron Judge's monster deal from last season that we were all abuzz about. And it is the first half a billion dollar player deal. He's the first half a billion dollar player in the game of baseball. So that, that sends a clear message that Major League Baseball is alive and well. And I will wrap this part of the conversation up with, with this is as fans of the game and fans that want to grow the game, how can we be mad about that? I don't know. Keeps us talking. Keeps things interesting, right? Let's touch a little bit on the media coverage surrounding this. It's never good when the media is part of the story, is it? So, you know, if we're talking about it, it's because there was some craziness. The first question I want to pose to you is, and if you know, please hit me up if you have an answer to this, because I don't. What is the obsession and the value of being first to announce on Twitter? Like, if there ever was a value what was it? But also like, does it exist anymore? 
But here's what I do understand. Like, even as consumers, didn't you feel the urge to know first? Like, I wanted I wanted to know so I could text all my friends, so I could tell everybody, so I could share it with my followers and let everybody know. There's that urge to, like, have the perfect tweet crafted about it. It's your chance to go viral. So we're all guilty of it. We all can relate. It's a shared experience. And it's not part of our job, right, as fans and like how we are valued in the professional sense like it is for these reporters. So the pressure is on that that we can understand. But as we are following reports from typically reputable sources on Twitter that Shohei Otani was on a flight to Toronto this past Friday, along with all kinds of other reports from sushi restaurant reservations in Toronto to, did you see the, there were videos of Shohei Otani and his translator supposedly arriving at the Toronto airport. Like, I don't know what airport they were at, but there was even a Christmas tree in the background of some of them. If you crafted one of those or you've been saving that in your back pocket to throw it out for this, I mean, you're ridiculous, but (laughs) whatever. So I don't even know, like, God knows when he was actually arriving at that airport, but clearly not accurate. Per Bob Nightingale of USA Today, he wrote an article actually about the media frenzy, failure, and embarrassment around the Otani news. And he writes that there were nearly 3,500 people monitoring the plane on Flight Radar 24, which was the most watched flight in the world. The flight that that Shohei Otani was supposedly on to Toronto. Yeah, no, he, he had not even woken up when this flight took off. Uh, at his home in California, where he never left that day, is what we do know now. And once again, I got to give kudos to Ken Rosenthal, who's like my go-to guy for everything, because he talked about this. And, you know, I'm not going to name names. He does, and he addresses it head-on on on Fair Territory, I believe, which I'll link that that clip in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. Great, great free content that comes at you daily from the guys over at Foul Territory. And then Ken does his Fair Territory once a week as well. Uh, But he did a great job on a recent episode giving both grace and then, of course, fairly welcoming critique to colleagues who broke false reports. But it's exactly what we talked about earlier. Ken was vulnerable and honest. He shared the human experience without making excuses. He shared that how he was part of reporting misinformation coming into the 2021 season where he said the Padres were close to signing Max Scherzer. And that, of course, it did not happen. And that was, you know, he shared one of the the worst times in his career and most difficult things for him to work through and maintain his reputation. But it was helpful to hear his behind the scenes perspective on how stuff like that ends up happening. Right. And and just to also be reminded that we all make mistakes and we all make mistakes in our jobs. It happens. We are humans. So, you know, he doesn't make any excuses for his friends and colleagues, but his take on it, you know, straight from someone who, knows how it goes better than anybody is worth listening to. So check that out if you're interested in hearing more about it. Anyway, Bob ultimately writes uh, in his article for USA Today that the way Otani conducted his free agency should not be pra- should be praised, not criticized. So the way Otani conducted his free agency should be praised, not criticized. 
This is after detailing how the media is completely used. And they very much lean into that, obviously, by agents to create narratives to leverage these free agent negotiations. So the fact that absolutely nothing was leaked from Otani and his agents, and it was handled strictly and straight up between only the people that it's really between, like, shouldn't that be refreshing and really more appropriate and respectful for everyone involved? Yeah, including fans. So I guess once again, the moral of this entire episode is that we should all try to just be more like Shohei on and off the field perhaps. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Like, do not even waste your time consuming everything that came out about Shohei Otani from even prior to Friday morning, but especially like Friday morning, all day Friday. Madness. Madness. Never seen anything like it. But that is the the day and age that we are living in. And that, that is a big part of it as well. The time and the world we are currently living in. I do want to mention the best social media coverage of the Otani signing. And another thing that is undoubtedly great for the game through all of this came to us, none other than Joe Kelly's wife. So Joe Kelly is a pitcher who has played for the Dodgers for a number of years, had a short stint with the White Sox, ended up back with the Dodgers and he resigns to play with the Dodgers for next year. His wife, Ashley Kelly, she is Ashley Nico Kelly on Instagram. I'll throw her handle in the show notes. Great follow. Lots of fun. She took to Instagram with her hashtag OTake17 campaign because her husband, Joe Kelly, is number 17 on the Dodgers, which, of course, is Shohei Otani's number. So she is offering up all of her number 17 jerseys, her personally crafted merch that she's been collecting and wearing in support of her husband, who, who currently wears number 17 on the Dodgers all for Otani to come and take it, come wear number 17 and come to the Dodgers. So it's super funny and cute. Please go check that out, especially if you are sick of all of the other Otani media content out there, because this is just cute and clever and funny. Whew, lots of more, lots more of Otani coverage to come. You know, it's going to be out there coming at you from every angle. So thanks for touching on just a few points of it, uh, of what's out there right now about it with me today. But we're going to wrap things up today, wishing everyone a very happy Hanukkah. If you do not celebrate like me, uh, you may not know a lot about Hanukkah. But one of the truly great things about living in our country is, or, you know, it's supposed to be, so we're going to focus on it, shall we, that we are a culture of all different cultures. That is one of the things that we are really supposed to celebrate and be about here in America. The idea is that in this country, we can live among each other with different backgrounds, religious practices, and views of all kind with respect and appreciation for those differences. They, they make us better and more interesting. And I, I really believe that. And I hope you do too. So I like to highlight celebrations from cultures that are very prevalent in our nation, and even those that aren't. But depending on where you are or who you, who you interact with daily, you may be more or less aware of these cultures that are a very rich part of our country and its history, as much as, you know, the more mainstream culture of Christianity and a holiday like Christmas is in our country. So what is Hanukkah? Hanukkah, it's spelled a couple different ways, but it's all the same thing. It is the Jewish eight-day wintertime festival of lights. So if you hear the term festival of lights, that all comes from Hanukkah. 
It is celebrated with a nightly menorah lighting, special prayers, and fried foods. I'm in. The Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication, and it is thus named because it celebrates the rededication of the holy temple. Hanukkah begins on the eve of Kislev, so it's not always the same. It's kind of like Thanksgiving, where uh, like how the holiday falls, it's not always on the same day. Like Christmas is on December 25th every year. Hanukkah is not like that, sometimes on different dates, but always around the same time of year. Because Kislev is the ninth month of the Jewish calendar, so it's dictated by that, and it continues for eight days. So this year, Hanukkah runs from December 7th through the 15th, and we are right smack dab in the middle of Hanukkah today on December 11th. In the second century BCE, the Holy Land was ruled by Syrian Greeks who tried to force the people of Israel to accept Greek culture and beliefs instead of mitzvah observance and their belief in God. So this is how it all originated. Against all odds, a small handful of faithful but poorly armed Jews led by Judah the Maccabee defeated one of the mightiest armies on earth drove the Greeks from the land and reclaimed the holy temple in Jerusalem and rededicated it to the service of God. When they sought to light the temple's menorah, which is the seven branch uh, candle, candelabrum. <laughs> There's a new word I need to learn to say. Uh, anyway, they tried to, to light their seven candles. They found only a single cruise of olive oil that had escaped contamination by the Greeks. So they've, they've only got enough oil to light one candle. This is the part that I had heard before. Miraculously, they lit the menorah and the one day supply of oil lasted for all eight days until new oil could be prepared under conditions of ritual purity. So to commemorate and publicize these miracles, the sages instituted the festival of Hanukkah. And that's, that's how it all started way back in the day. At the heart of the festival is the nightly menorah lighting, which you have probably seen. The menorah holds nine flames, one of which is the shamash or the attendant. And this is the candle that's used to kindle the other eight lights. So on the first night, we light just one flame. On the second night, an additional flame is lit by that one candle. And by the eighth night of Hanukkah, all eight lights are kindled. On Friday afternoon of Hanukkah, Kara must be taken to light the menorah before Shabbat candles are lit, which is another Jewish tradition. And the following evening, they are to be kindled only after Shabbat has ended. Special blessings are recited often to a traditional melody before the menorah is lit and traditional songs are sung afterwards. So a menorah is lit in every Jewish household or even by uh, every individual sometimes in the household and placed in a doorway or a window. Since the Hanukkah miracle involved oil, it is customary to eat fried foods, foods that are fried in oil. Give it to me. The Eastern European classic is the potato latke, the potato pancake. Have you had it? Oh yeah, so good. Sometimes uh, commonly garnished with applesauce or sour cream. It's good either way, sweet and savory. That's one of my favorite things about it. And the reigning Israeli favorite is actually jelly-filled, a jelly-filled latke. I got to try try me some of that. Does anybody make jelly-filled latkes? That sounds incredible. And what flavor is the jelly? I'm not sure if it matters. I'd love to find out. During Hanukkah, it is also customary to give what they call gelt, which is money, to children so that we can teach them to give some of it to charity. So that's another 
another piece that is, you know, a big part of this and something like just a moral and a value that is instilled through this holiday. Also, we're, you know, we're just giving money. We're giving gifts to keep things festive and happy. Some have the admirable custom of gelt giving each weeknight of Hanukkah. In Shabbat, it is customary to give gelt every night, but to hand out a heftier sum on the fourth or fifth night. So certain nights get a little bit bigger gifts. If you or your family celebrate Hanukkah and you have, you know, specific traditions around it, I would love to hear about it. I think the Jewish culture is so fascinating and cool. And we have a lot of cultures that are, again, like I said, very prevalent, very big part of our country, the United States culture that not all of us know a lot about because, you know, we don't learn about it if it's not part of the culture that that we are specifically raised in. But I think it's really cool to know about it and to appreciate it. And so that we're able to acknowledge it for those of us who are celebrating it. And it's obviously something that's very meaningful to them. But, and what's really cool to learn about, you know, specifically a lot of their religious customs about their cultures is they all come down to so many of the similar morals and values. And we're using these religious traditions and customs to, to teach our children and to keep these morals and values alive. And, and they all come down to a lot of the same things that ultimately bring us all together. So it's just another reason why it's cool and impactful to learn about them. And that's how we're going to wrap things up today by wishing a very happy Hanukkah to those who are celebrating this week. You can follow along with Peace, Love, and Baseball all over on social media. I am at Kbird Tweets on Twitter. We're at peace.love.baseball on Instagram. We have a Facebook page, Peace, Love, and Baseball. And if you want to subscribe on the YouTube channel, YouTube channel is Kbird Tweets, Peace, Love, and Baseball. You'll see us there. So you can watch on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe if you're there. If you are listening on your favorite podcast platform, maybe on Spotify, maybe Apple Podcasts, maybe Amazon Music, wherever you are at, you can subscribe to the show so you don't miss the next episode. You can give us a five-star rating. And by us, I mean me and producer June, my dog who lays here next to me. And uh, you can review. We love written reviews. If you want to give a, a written review, tell us what you think, what you'd like to hear. Awesome. We've got some fun stuff coming in the new year that will divulge uh, in the upcoming episodes here. But, you know, once you've done all that, all you got to do is make sure that you tune in next week and I will see you then for more peace, love, and peace.